This week on the podcast, we are rebroadcasting a conversation I had with the great historian Martin Sherwin, which was originally aired on April 7th, 2021. Marty was a dear friend of my family and knew me since I was born. As I got older and started reading some of what he had written, including the book we're about to talk about focused on the Cuban Missile Crisis, I gained an enormous amount of respect for him not just as a person, which I already knew, but as a great professional, a great thinker, and a great analyst and explainer of history, and how we can do better, how our institutions can serve our ideals better. In this vein, Marty Sherwin, in an interview in 2005, during the war in both Iraq and Afghanistan, said McCarthyism represented, quote, a historical warning that democracy is vulnerable to the government's abuse of power. He said that warning had a special meaning in our contemporary times, given what he described as, quote, the secrecy in government, the citation of weapons of mass destruction and terrorism, the manipulation of public anxiety, and the creation of the enemy within, the enemy without. Marty was a great raconteur, as you'll hear, a bon vivant. He loved restaurants, he loved cooking, he loved the outdoors, bicycling and skiing and was one of the most energetic presences that I knew. Marty Sherwin was born July 1937 in Brooklyn and died October 6, 2021, at his home in Washington, D.C. I already miss him. Welcome to Talking Beats with Daniel Lalchuk. That's me, and I'm so glad you're here. If you like what we do, I'd love it if you gave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you're so compelled, write a review. That really helps. And maybe tell a friend or family member. They might like the show as much as you do. If you want to get involved in the program, visit our website, talkingbeats.com, and click Support the Show, where you can make either a one-time or a recurring donation. As we look to continue having cliche-free conversations of real substance with a diverse range of the world's most compelling people, your support is so appreciated, especially as we look to expand and increase our offerings. If you have a question, comment, or thought, find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or if you wish to reach out directly, email me at daniel at talkingbeats.com. I'm so glad you're here. Let's get on with today's conversation. On today's program, we're speaking with author and historian Martin Sherwin. He's university professor at George Mason and the author of numerous books, including A World Destroyed, Hiroshima and Its Legacies, and American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer, written with Kai Bird, that won the Pulitzer Prize for Biography. Marty Sherwin, the preeminent historian of the Cold War, is out with a new book that is redefining our relationship to this volatile, fragile period of time. The book, Gambling with Armageddon, Nuclear Roulette, From Hiroshima to the Cuban Missile Crisis, is riveting and frankly scary, and I'm thrilled to have the author, longtime friend of mine, by the way, right here with me, Marty Sherwin. Welcome. Ah, thank you very much, Daniel. Glad to be here. You've been writing about the Cold War, writing about nuclear weapons for decades. What was it about the Cuban Missile Crisis that was either unanswered or unexplained or not sufficiently contextualized by 
other books and other tellings that made you feel you have to do something in this area? Well, I turned to the Cuban Missile Crisis for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, I had begun my career with a book about building and using the atomic bomb called The World Destroyed, Hiroshima and its Legacies. Uh, and then I wrote a book about Robert Oppenheimer with uh, Kai Bird, American Prometheus. Uh, so my next question was, uh, you know, sort of where do I go from from here? What is the next big issue that was um, emerging during the nuclear age between Hiroshima and uh, and Oppenheimer. And the Cuban Missile Crisis was the obvious, obvious choice. What I would find, what would be new, uh, uh, is um, uh, something I didn't know for sure. That's the excitement of doing history. You, uh, you have an idea, you formulate it as best you can. Uh, you write a proposal. If you're lucky, you get a contract. Uh, and then you dive into the archives and all the readings and you think about it as hard as you can. And uh, you generally uh, find something new. Uh, and uh, I certainly did. I imagine in historical research, you, you find things you don't expect to find and you don't find things you do expect to find. What, what happened most in, in the process of, of this? Was it information you sort of assumed that, that you, you didn't end up finding, or, or was it real surprises that you had no clue about? Well, it was both, actually. Uh, very shrewd of you to uh, frame it that way, Daniel. Uh, I began this uh, project as... Um, an investigation of uh, the military's role in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, obviously, it had been covered, but no one had really covered that in the depth that I thought uh, it would be useful to, uh, to cover it. Uh, so the proposal was uh, the military uh, and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, surprise! I found out that in 1975, the Joint Chiefs of Staff had destroyed, repeat, destroyed all of the minutes of the Joint Chiefs meetings between 19, I think, 47, 1948, when the Chiefs were formed in their current role, uh, and 1975. Uh, I think it was because of the church committee hearings that were looking into government improprieties, and they used an excuse of uh, sorting through their uh, documents uh, for creating a more efficient system or something like that. So the idea of focusing on uh, the military uh, exclusively uh, uh, did not uh, did not pan out. So that was number one. What I hoped to find, I didn't find. Uh, but it was a good thing because uh, that led me to uh, to rethink the project and uh, integrate what information we did have on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which were notes taken from those minutes uh, before they were destroyed, and integrating it into uh, the full story from Hiroshima to the Cuban Missile Crisis. I think one of the 
findings uh, that I emphasize is that you can't think of the Cuban Missile Crisis as something that sort of suddenly dropped out of the sky uh, because Khrushchev got this crazy idea to sneak missiles into Cuba. Uh, it was an evolutionary thing. It uh, The reason he tried to sneak uh, Soviet missiles into Cuba was because of the entire history of how nuclear weapons were used from Hiroshima until 1962. Um, and primarily how they were used by the United States, primarily under the Eisenhower administration, uh, which provided Khrushchev with a blueprint for how he used nuclear weapons. You've talked about the 13-day period, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you've also talked about the 17-year period that you just alluded to, the long, as you call it, the long Cuban Missile Crisis. Why do you think it helps to look at the long version, the 17-year version. And then I, I want to get into, uh, as well, some of the, the shocking things that I learned in this book about Eisenhower and his incredible, contradictory, public-private statements and sentiments. What does the 17-year, the, the long Cuban Missile Crisis, teach us as we look towards the brief period of 13 days? I'm a historian, and I think one of the responsibilities of a historian is to look at the roots of things. Everything is connected, and events do not occur like a big bang that sort of suddenly uh, and unexpectedly happens. Everything has roots. And in all of the books that I've written, uh, A World Destroyed, uh, for example, um, when you talk about uh, why Hiroshima was bombed, uh, most of the work up until uh, I wrote that book uh, focused on when Truman came into office uh, after Roosevelt died. Um, well, I went back to, uh, to Roosevelt and to 1939 and looked at what the connection was between what Roosevelt had done and Truman would end up doing. And the same thing was true with Oppenheimer. Uh, most of the... Uh, uh, biographies and studies of Oppenheimer uh, focused on the Manhattan Project and uh, his hearing. Well, um, Kai and I went back to, uh, to the roots, to his childhood, trying to understand what made Oppenheimer Oppenheimer, who was the critical force in getting uh, nuclear weapons built be in time to be used during the war. Uh, the same thing is true of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, you cannot understand why Khrushchev decided to put medium-range and intermediate-range missiles into Cuba, as opposed to putting a huge uh, military force, uh, uh, just tactical nuclear weapons, or you know some other kind of munitions to protect. Castro, why did he choose these maximum rockets to put in Cuba? Well, the answer is uh, Eisenhower had shipped similar rockets, uh, similar missiles to Europe. Um, 
to Turkey and uh, and and Italy after uh, October 1957 when the Soviets launched Sputnik. You know, Eisenhower's response was those missiles to Europe to protect our allies. Well, Khrushchev's response was those same kind of missiles to Cuba to protect uh, his new best friend, Fidel Castro. This may be a ignorant question, but why did Khrushchev care so much about Castro? Wasn't it sort of a, a inconsequential place so far away in the world? And I guess it's close to the U.S. geographically, but what was his association? What was his obsession with protecting Cuba? Ah, Cuba was a gift to Castro uh, that Eisenhower's uh, very rigid anti-communist foolish policies uh, gave Castro. Uh, it was an opportunity for the Soviets to penetrate the Western Hemisphere. Uh, it was uh, a piece of golden territory for the Soviet Union. Remember, you know, the 1950s and 60s uh, is a time of intense competition between the United States and the Soviet Union for the allegiance of the third world. And Cuba's uh, being a communist government uh, was uh, just a fantastic opportunity for Khrushchev. In fact, it was so important to Khrushchev that uh, it became the focus of his attention. He had, he had two major considerations. One was protecting this communist government in the Western Hemisphere as an example of the Soviet Union's ability uh, to uh, uh, advance uh, communism into the third world. And his second concern was getting uh, the United States, the British and the French out of West Berlin, which was a hundred and something miles into East German territory. And these two concerns became connected uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis in a very interesting way. Can you zoom out a little and just talk about, for a listener who has no clue about the Cuban Missile Crisis other than a little background maybe, or maybe not even that, we have the background that, that Khrushchev is installing these nuclear weapons in Cuba. Give a, a little more. Why should the average listener in the 21st century be so concerned about the Cuban Missile Crisis? Well, the Cuban Missile Crisis was the most dangerous moment in world history, not just in the Cold War, in world history. It was a crisis that uh, brought nuclear weapons to the brink of being used. Um, the lessons of the Cuban Missile Crisis are absolutely critical for understanding, one, how the United States and the Soviet Union moved forward from 1962 to the end of uh, the Cold War. And the lessons are powerful with respect to uh, 
how uh, presidents and premiers and uh, anybody who has control of nuclear weapons uh, should think about them in a crisis or should not think about them in a particular way during a crisis. It's the most important moment in world history. Give a little background about about yourself, about your military service uh, in 62, 1962. You're a junior officer in the U.S. Navy, and you had a, a rather specific role to play. Uh, you were the squadron's air intelligence officer, um, and, and you write, my responsibilities made me the custodian of our top secret documents, our deployment orders in the event of war. Those orders were periodically updated, and when they were, a senior staff officer, always accompanied by an armed Marine, arrived with a sealed envelope. So talk about, if you would, address how your own personal history, 50 years earlier than now, than the publication of this book, uh, influenced or began to awaken your own curiosity about what the hell these envelopes contained that you were putting in a vault. Uh, yes, no, that, that was... That was a very uh, interesting moment for me, to say the least. Uh, so it's 1962, uh, October, and I am the Air Intelligence Officer, uh, Lieutenant J.G., for uh, Patrol Squadron uh, 31, uh, which was stationed in uh, San Diego. I received word about, um, oh, I don't know, four or five days uh, maybe three days before Kennedy announced that uh, he was blockading Cuba. That announcement took place on October 22nd, a Monday night. I received word earlier that week that an operation I was going to participate in, I was going to navigate uh, an admiral's plane around the world for this fabulous uh, global trip, uh, was canceled. Nobody knew exactly why, except that we got rumors that Marines at El Toro Air Station, uh, about an hour from us, uh, were boarding planes and heading east, and everybody thought it was uh, a Berlin crisis. Well, uh, probably on October 22nd, uh, the morning that uh, before Kennedy gave his speech, uh, I was ordered to uh, retrieve that envelope from the inner sanctum of my safe uh, with the top secret orders, take it over to the skipper's um, office uh, where I met with the skipper, the executive officer, and the operations officer, and we opened the orders. Uh, and um, they were deployment orders, uh, essentially, if uh, war broke out. And uh, my squadron was going to deploy to Baja, California. Uh, and the reason for that was dispersing all aircraft to areas where Soviet missiles um, would not reach them. Uh, so it was pretty, um, uh, pretty dramatic. But the embarrassing thing for me was the recognition afterwards that I was not scared, I was not upset. Uh, some of my 
junior officer friends. None of us were married. Uh, and therefore, I think a lot less mature about these things. So, oh, ho, ho, Baja California, what a great place to uh, die. Uh, big joke. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and as I say in the book, it was not until I really researched this uh, Cuban Missile Crisis in depth that I realized how close to death we had come. Now, at that point, did you want to be a historian or you were just going to keep going through the ranks in the military or were you thinking god i, I gotta go write some things down and do some research no 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 i wasn't uh, that serious as a historian uh, at that point but i was uh, i was due to finish my military obligation uh in about three or four months from that point and I was applying to, uh, to graduate schools. As I said, I was in San Diego, and uh, I got into UCLA, and I made an arrangement with uh, the skipper of our squadron that I would take the duty on the weekends, which everybody was delighted about, uh, if he would let me drive up to from San Diego to uh, Los Angeles uh, and uh, take uh, classes during the first weeks of the semester uh, before I got out of the military, which uh, was an arrangement that worked out. One thing that I uh, found it a little hard to grapple with in this book was Eisenhower's relationship to nuclear weapons. Uh, he, he says one thing in public, he says one thing in private, he says a number of times in public, uh, quoting here, I was against the atomic bombings, uh, in Japan on two counts. First, the Japanese were ready to surrender and it wasn't necessary to hit them with that awful thing. Second, True. I hated to see our country be the first to use such a weapon. Uh, but at the same time, um, his Secretary of State, Dulles, is, is giving these speeches saying that uh, nuclear weapons are the first line of defense. And, you know, it, it is... Uh, a little confusing about Eisenhower. Can you explain all this? Uh, yes, but it's important to underline that we are not talking about at the same time. Uh, in 1945, uh, Eisenhower um, was a general who had won his war in Europe, and he had a very shrewd uh, perspective on the consequences of using nuclear weapons. He was absolutely correct. They were not necessary uh, to end the war. The Japanese were ready to surrender as soon as the Soviets came into the war, as they were committed to do and for their own reasons wanted to do. Uh, the Japanese had to surrender because uh, they understood that if the Soviets, when the Soviets came into the war, uh, they could not fight a two-front war. Soviets would be coming in from the north. They were uh, uh, preparing to meet the Americans in the south. And also the Japanese were um, more anti-communist than, than the Americans. And the idea of a Soviet occupation uh, was uh, the worst possible nightmare. So surrendering to the Americans suddenly became uh, uh, the best option. Eisenhower understood that. Isn't um, there a narrative that, I know you would say it's a mistaken narrative, but isn't there an, a popular narrative or a widely held narrative that 
that America had to use the bombs to end the war. Yes, of course. That's the um, uh, the argument that Truman made. And uh, what uh, what other argument would we make uh, using uh, having used the atomic bombs? You know, of course, it um, uh, was argued that they were necessary, but they weren't. Um, the invasion was uh, scheduled uh, for November. We're talking about August. Uh, the Soviets uh, were coming into the war no later than uh, the 12th or 13th of August. They came in on August 9th. The one effect that the atomic bomb had was that it moved the Soviet um, invasion up about two or three days. There's always the question that people should ask and all historians should ask when they frame their work. How do we know what we know? And when it comes to government decisions, we know what we know by what we're told, what the government tells journalists, what the government uh, uh, announces over the radio, uh, and so on and so forth. The fantastic thing about historical research, the exciting thing about it, is that 50 years after an event, when we're talking about government affairs, uh, we generally know much more about what really happened than we knew at the time, because we get to see the documents. We get to see all the secret uh, information that was discussed, uh, but not revealed at the time. The soldiers who believed that uh, the atomic bomb saved their lives because there was otherwise would have been an invasion. They understood that because they were told that. But that is not simply how it happened. Uh, but, you know, we could go on for hours uh, talking about uh, Hiroshima. Uh, we have to move on from there uh, to uh, the question you asked about uh, Eisenhower. He correctly analyzed the situation and concluded that it was not necessary to use uh, the atomic bomb to end the war in August of 1945. But that was when he had perspective. Uh, he becomes president in January of 1953. Uh, the Korean War has not been uh, an armistice has not been reached. He is a fiscal conservative. He's also a ideological anti-communist. We have a notation from his diary in 1946 in which he writes, uh, we are in a war to the death uh, with communism. And this is 1946. Uh, you know, it's not even a year after uh, the the Grand Alliance defeated, you know, the Germans. Um, and, and he's pointing towards this uh, battle to the death. He never talks about this publicly, but deep down inside, he is um, an ideologue. So in 1953, he looks around and says, how do I... Uh, deal with uh, this Soviet threat 
uh, most efficiently. And he said, well, nuclear weapons. The United States has a great nuclear weapons advantage. By 53, the Soviets had developed their own atomic bomb, which uh, they first tested in August of 1949. But they were way behind us. And he develops this um, massive retaliation idea and brinksmanship and really and sends John Foster Dulles off to essentially threaten the Soviet Union with uh, with nuclear war, which, you know, really provides the framework for the nuclear arms race as we came to uh, to live it uh, and to uh, and to understand it. And speaking of 1953, as you write, there was a possibility, there was an opening maybe for easing of the tensions. March 1953, Stalin drops dead. And right. and, and you highlight such a missed opportunity to dial things back or to, to lower the temperature. Uh, and, and just talk about how the U.S. did nothing on that front. When Eisenhower came into office... Uh, with this very clear idea that nuclear weapons would be moved from a more or less a backstop position that uh, Truman kept them in to the forefront uh, by promoting this massive retaliation doctrine. The entire sort of framework for how Eisenhower was going to deal with foreign policy on the military end uh, was already set. And when Stalin died, um, there was obviously discussions about, you know, what does this mean? And the bottom line seemed to be, you know, Stalinism is communism and communism is Stalinism. The fact that Stalin is dead really doesn't change communism. And so onward the way we are going uh, right now. And all of the committees that Eisenhower had uh, developed to uh, uh, analyze how to best use nuclear weapons just move forward with uh, their work as it was designed, uh, you know, even before Stalin's, Stalin's death. Uh, there was no effort to, you know, maybe we should uh, develop another committee uh, to examine what are the implications? I mean, who's going to take over? What are these guys going to be like? Uh, uh, will communism be different? Uh the idea that communism would be different uh, was just totally re rejected. But it was different. Khrushchev was very, very, very different than Stalin. And he gave this long four-hour speech, and uh, we, the American government got the text of that speech at one point, didn't they? Between 1953 and 1956, there's a lot of uh, jostling in uh, uh, the Soviet government for uh, who is going to be the top dog. First, um, uh, it's Malenkov, uh, then 
Khrushchev manages to take over by uh, 1955 or so. And he decides uh, that at the 20th Party Congress of the Soviet Union in February 1956, uh, he is going to essentially transform both domestic Soviet policy and Soviet uh, military policy. Uh, and at the end of the uh, 20th Party Congress, uh, he adds an extra se secret session uh, and delivers this four-hour speech that does two things. One denounces Stalin's cult of personality and his reign of terror, uh, really sort of rips into the history of the Soviet Union in a way that exposes uh, the horrors of uh, Stalinism, uh, which is, to say the very least, uh, shocking uh, to um, all of the Soviet delegates. It seems uh, very brave of him, though. Oh, it's huge! It was, it was, it was the most courageous thing, um, you know. I think any. Soviet politician ever ever did, and in fact, maybe it's the most courageous thing that um, any politician you know ever did. And for our purposes, has a second speech in which he argues that we no longer can think about war because nuclear war will absolutely destroy every nation that participates in it. And so uh, he makes a proposal for a new strategy called peaceful coexistence, which is an incredible change and exactly, you know, the opposite of what Eisenhower uh, is, is arguing, which is massive retaliation. So, you know, we have this, you know, sort of imbalance uh, with the uh, the United States military, mainly Strategic Air Command, um, uh, is, you know, arguing that, oh, peaceful coexistence is, uh, is just a curtain that, to hide the Soviet intention of um, uh, taking over the world. Doesn't it make you wonder, or does it make you wonder, as a historian, as, as someone who knows as much more than anybody about this, why there was that imbalance, why there was no one in the American government saying at the time, listen to what he's saying, and uh, maybe we can adjust a little bit as well, why there was such an obstinate hard-headedness and, and sort of continuing with, with those blinders on. Anti-communism became the foundation of the American political system. Uh, there was a bipartisan agreement between Democrats and Republicans that the Soviets uh, were an existential threat and uh, they uh, were determined to uh, destroy the United States and everything was built around that psychologically. But there were dissenters. Um, 
Uh, Adlai Stevenson is, um, plays a very important role in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And remember, he is the uh, Democratic candidate for the presidency in 1952 and 1956 against Eisenhower. And during his campaigns, he argues for a much more reasonable, measured, I guess you would have to say, peaceful or cooperative approach towards uh, the Soviet the Soviet Union, but he totally rejected. Why? Because the American public uh, has, uh, for the most part, been committed to uh, this idea that uh, uh, we are in a battle to the death uh, with the Soviet Union. I want to get into the. Adlai Stevenson and the the Kennedys' uh, history and relationship, but I'm just looking down here, and of course there, there's a nice little paragraph about Van Cliburn winning the Tchaikovsky competition over in Moscow in 1958, the first American to do so, and and I, I love how how Khrushchev asks the great composer Shostakovich, who was the head of the jury, uh, is he the best? And he says, yes. Uh, and, and Khrushchev says, give him the prize. And uh, Marty Sherwin, you know this uh, show is called Talking Beats, and everybody has to just talk a little bit about music, uh, <laughs> musician or not. And I I know you're a music lover, but any music happening in your life right now on YouTube or wherever? Uh, well, I listen to you, Daniel. Uh, <laughs> I have your records, <laughs> your beautiful cello records. <laughs> so uh, I call them records. Of course, they're not records. They're CDs, but uh, I'm just exposing my age. Uh, well, records are making a big comeback anyway, so millennials okay. are all about records. Aha, uh-huh. okay. I just <laughs> learned something. <clears throat> well, So have you always been a music lover? Are, are you a music or you, you like music somehow? Has it always I, played a role in your life? I uh, do love music. I am a totally incompetent musician. I cannot even carry a tune. But uh, for some reason, uh, classical music is um, something that soothes, soothes me. As is uh, as is it for me too, and um, obviously I, I love the uh, first Tchaikovsky piano concerto that Van Cliburn played over there in 1958 and won the competition. That that was a great, great moment uh, culturally. I just want to pick up on this music a little bit. Um, you know, I, the question is, what is a um, a section of a book about the Cuban Missile Crisis? Uh, have to do with uh, Van Cliburn uh, winning uh, th- this contest in, in Moscow. Well, I thought that uh, it demonstrated uh, Khrushchev's uh, openness to uh, reaching out to the, to the West. Uh, everybody expected... Uh, uh, the Soviet, uh, you know, a Soviet performer uh, to win that first great Moscow, you know, conference. And here this lanky Texan comes along and just knocks everybody out of their chairs in, um, uh, in the hall uh, with his, you know, performance. Uh, he gets huge standing ovations, uh, and suddenly there is a crisis for the judges. 
uh, he's clearly the best, but how can we possibly give an American, uh, you know, this, this prize? So they call Khrushchev, and Khrushchev just says, is he the best? If he's the best, give him the prize. And then Khrushchev comes over and, um, you know, when the prize is awarded and, and he's there and he gives Van Cliburn one of his famous bear hugs. And there's a picture in the book, uh, you know, it's, it's Mutton Jeff. Uh, Van Cliburn's this uh, six feet, six foot plus, I think six, three or four. A lanky Texan and Khrushchev, you know, kind of comes up to uh, the middle of his chest. Um, uh, and to me, it represents an attitude that was totally lacking at that time uh, in the United States. Uh, the, the government hostility was palpable towards, uh, towards the Soviet Union. Let's talk Adlai Stevenson because he does emerge as it. Well, I'll, I'll ask it this way: is is he the one hero of all? Is he one of the heroes of this whole thing? Well, you know, there are many kinds of heroes during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, both Kennedy and Khrushchev are the responsible agents for the crisis at the beginning, but at the end, they are partners. Um, uh, trying to solve this crisis uh, with without a without a war, but uh, Adlai Stevenson, and this is one of um, the uh, original points that I make in the in the again uh, gambling with Armageddon. Adlai Stevenson emerges at the very beginning of the crisis as the most sensible and far-sighted and important um, analyst of how to resolve this crisis uh, quickly. Another theme of gambling with Armageddon is luck and uh, the role that luck plays. And with respect to Adlai Stevenson, uh, there's luck involved. Kennedy is informed on the morning of October 16th that uh, missiles, Soviet missiles have been discovered in Cuba. He has a meeting with a collection of advisors uh, who eventually get labeled the XCOM, Executive Committee of the National Security Council. Uh, he has a meeting with them at 1130. And then he has a luncheon appointment to fet the, I think it's a king of, I think it's Libya. But in any case, he has this formal diplomatic luncheon. And it just so happened, by luck, that Adlai Stevenson, who was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, uh, came down from New York that morning and had a previous arrangement uh, to join Kennedy for that luncheon. Uh, after lunch, Kennedy takes Stevenson up to uh, the family quarters and shows him the, photo the U-2 photographs of the uh, Soviet missiles in Cuba. And he says to Stevenson, I guess we're going to have to bomb or invade Cuba to get them out. And Stevenson immediately uh, 
uh, says, oh, no, that is not a good idea. We can do this diplomatically. And in the course of the conversation, he lays out uh, right off the top of his head the blueprint for how the Cuban Missile Crisis is in fact resolved. We know all this and we know the details because Stevenson sums them up in a memorandum he then sends to Kennedy the next day uh, about their about their conversation. And so Kennedy, who began with uh, agreeing with his advisors that bombing or invasion was going to be the way to remove the Soviet missiles, uh, is confronted with this memorandum, with this conversation first on the 16th, and then this memorandum on the 17th, laying out a very different uh, approach. And uh, I make the case that uh, Stevenson's conversation and memorandum with Kennedy are absorbed by uh, John Kennedy as he begins to think through this problem that he's facing. Uh, and he becomes, in effect, an advocate for the uh, Stevenson uh, uh, approach. And in the end of the crisis, he is an isolated advocate. Uh, all his advisors are against um, the effort to um, uh, solve the problem diplomatically in a particular way that the crisis uh, concludes, and we can talk about that. And just before we get to the way it concludes, what is Bobby Kennedy doing at this time, and, and, and what does he write in 13 days, his memoir yeah. of the crisis? Yeah, uh, no, that is that. That's really fascinating. Um, the section on the Cuban Missile Crisis in the book is based on the uh, secret tape recordings uh, of all of these uh, XCOM meetings. Kennedy had had a secret tape recording system installed about three or four months before uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred. And so we have the exact words of uh, those people who were advising Kennedy uh, and the president himself when he was in those meetings. Uh, Bobby Kennedy, who portrays himself in his memoir of the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, 13 Days, uh, you know, as the great peacemaker, well, he is a peacemaker when his brother tells him that that's what he wants him to do. But throughout the crisis, uh, Bobby just goes, you know, I would say, you know, off in crazy uh, directions. I mean, he, at one point he says, uh, maybe we got to get this over with quickly, uh, you know, uh, sink the main or something uh, in order to have an excuse to invade Cuba. Uh, other times he says, uh, uh, if this is what the Soviets want, maybe we should just get it over with now as quickly as, uh, quickly as possible. He's a very loose cannon. Uh, uh, he's a young kid with huge responsibilities. 
uh, and uh, he's not he's not ready for him. And the Bobby Kennedy we know, uh, we think we know, uh, nineteen sixty eight uh, is very different from the Bobby Kennedy during the. Uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. So talk about the way that they got out of it. Uh, you, you, They were following Adlai Stevenson's blueprint, as you said. So uh, how did it get resolved? There are really two parts to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, the first part is from October 16th, the day that Kennedy was informed that the missiles were in Cuba, until October, the evening of October 22nd, when he uh, gave his uh, uh, television address announcing to the world that we were going to blockade uh, uh, Cuba uh, in order to force the Soviets to take their missiles out of, uh, out of Cuba. That is the American crisis uh, exclusively. Uh, we have not inform the Soviets that we know about their missiles. And the XCOM uh, and Kennedy uh, debate uh, how we're going to get rid of those missiles. For the first few days, the consensus is uh, very much supported by the Joint Chiefs that we're going to have to bomb or or invade Cuba or both. But Kennedy... Uh, having received uh, Stevenson's memorandum and uh, listening to his advisor's hawkish uh, suggestions, begins to reconsider uh, the idea of bombing or invasion. And uh, he begins to focus on the idea of blockading uh, the Soviets. Uh, we're not blockading, you know, Cuba completely, but mainly, of course, from the from the Soviets. The advisors are arguing, uh, for the most part, uh, there there are some splits that well, this might be even more dangerous because a blockade is an act of war, and then somebody comes up with the idea that well, let's not call it a blockade, let's call it a quarantine. Uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, Kennedy essentially forces the blockade as a preferred option uh, and uh, announces that on October 22nd in the evening. Now the Cuban Missile Crisis is in full bloom. Uh, Khrushchev um, is in a total panic uh, when he learns that Kennedy is going to give a speech, he thinks that uh, Kennedy's speech is going to uh, announce that the United States is invading Cuba. When he finds out that that is not the case, that it's going to be a blockade, uh, he uh, 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 rotates into a, uh, a different frame of mind and decides to confront Kennedy uh, with uh, charges of piracy and uh, illegal action, and uh, uh, he has every right to defend uh, his ally, uh, Castro. Uh, So what we have is a standoff between Tuesday, 
October 23rd, and uh, Sunday, October 28th, when the crisis is resolved. Now, what happens during those tension-riven days that could have uh, and seem to be heading towards a nuclear, nuclear war? The president is determined to uh, get those missiles out of there. Uh, why? Not because they're a threat to the United States. Uh, McNamara says uh, uh, they don't really change the balance of power. Kennedy himself says, what's the difference if you're killed by a missile coming from Cuba or a missile coming from Moscow uh, or from a Soviet submarine off the shores of the United States? Uh, it's a political problem. They all agree it's a political problem, and the, but the missiles have to go. So with that, uh, the question is how to force the missiles out. Well, by near the end of the week, a lot of messages being exchanged between the United States and between Khrushchev and Kennedy. And uh, towards the end of the week, Kennedy agrees that he will commit to not invading Cuba if Khrushchev takes his missiles out of Cuba. That is in response to a, a letter that Kennedy receives uh, near, the, near the end of the week from Khrushchev. Then another letter comes up on Saturday which Khrushchev announces over Radio Moscow. And therefore, it's not a secret letter. It's uh, a message to the whole world in which Khrushchev says, well, yes, uh, I'll accept the pledge that uh, you will not invade Cuba, but also I want you to remove those very dangerous intermediate-range missiles that you and Eisenhower inserted in Turkey 130 miles from the Soviet Union. Kennedy says to his XCOM advisors, we are not going to have a very good war if everybody understands that all we had to do is take these junk missiles out of Turkey in exchange for the Soviets taking their missiles out of Cuba. But his advisors are absolutely to a man against this, to a man except for Stevenson. Kennedy becomes totally isolated and committed to the idea that he is not going to slide into a nuclear war uh, because uh, his advisors don't want him to... Uh, trade these missiles in Cuba, in, in Turkey, for the missiles in Cuba. And uh, in the end, he sends his brother Bobby Kennedy to, uh, and this is on Saturday night, October 27th, the day before Khrushchev agrees to take his missiles out of Cuba. Kennedy sends his brother to meet with Soviet Ambassador Dobrynin and, uh, and in effect tell him that the missiles will be out of Turkey within a few months. It's 
you have to keep this secret. We will deny it if you, and we will not do it if you expose, you know, this agreement. But the president guarantees that the missiles will be out of Turkey. And that's the way the uh, crisis was resolved. Kennedy agreed to uh, not invade Cuba and s- publicly and secretly agreed uh, to remove the missiles from Turkey. Here we are in 2021. How much progress have we made as a world since the early 60s, since the mid-40s? Uh, where, where are we? Well, we're in a very dangerous place, and of course we have been since, uh, since Hiroshima. We uh, have survived or avoided a a nuclear war, uh, partly by uh, recognizing that a nuclear war is is suicidal, but also because of luck. As you know, gambling with Armageddon begins with uh, uh, this incredible story of Soviet submarines armed with nuclear torpedoes on the blockade line being attacked by uh, American anti-submarine warfare forces, attacked not to destroy them, but to try to surface them. But one of the submarine captains uh, believes that explosive charges being thrown overboard uh, are meant to uh, destroy him. And he orders his um, nuclear torpedo uh, loaded and shouts, we will not be the disgrace of the Soviet Navy. Uh, We are going to take them. We are all going to be killed, but we're going to take them with us. And he gets ready to fire this nuclear torpedo at uh, the American ASW aircraft carrier that's in um, the area. That's three to 4,000 uh, men aboard that carrier. Uh, at the very last minute, another officer by the name of Vasily Akhapov, who was uh, the same rank as uh, the captain, uh, manages to talk him out of this idea of firing the nuclear warhead uh, torpedo. And, you know, the luck involved of having Akhapov arbitrarily assigned to uh, that submarine. Uh, he was just being transported to, uh, uh, to Cuba. He was not part, of the, uh, not part of the crew. You know, essentially saved the world from a nuclear war. You know, these dangerous kinds of things happen all the time. There's an incident in uh, uh, September 1983 where another Soviet officer decides that a report that missiles have been fired by the United States at the Soviet Union is a false alarm. And he analyzes this, um, you know, very shrewdly. And if somebody else was on duty at that time, uh, it would have been reported to higher command and uh, the Soviets may have responded. We are dangling, as Kennedy said at the United Nations in 1961, I think it was, a sword of Damocles hanging by a thread over humanity. 
and uh, we're we're still in that same position, and we'll remain in that position unless we figure out how to get rid of nuclear weapons. On that note, Marty Sherwin, with the new book, Gambling with Armageddon, Nuclear Roulette, from Hiroshima to the Cuban Missile Crisis, Marty Sherwin, I thank you sincerely. Well, I thank you, Daniel, for taking the time and uh, letting me talk about uh, this very important topic. This and more on Talking Beats with Daniel Elchuk. And check us out on social media where the conversation is always on.